Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Anamari Kause, the president of the University of Washington. Today, we talk about how to make it safe for your employees to disagree with you and even criticize you, the importance of moving fast when you take on a leadership role, and what she learned about her communication style by watching videos of herself in action. Welcome, Dr. Kause. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with the basics of your career. Tell us what you are presently in charge of. Well, I'm president of the University of Washington. It's a three-campus system. Um, the flagship, uh, the main campus, as some people would call it, is in Seattle. Then we have campuses in Bothell and in Tacoma. And we also have four hospitals. And how many students and faculty and administrators are part of the system? Approxim- we have approximately 55,000 students. Wow. And the faculty and administrative bodies? Well, you know, those are always hard to count because we have the clinical professors in the hospitals, et cetera. But, you know, let's say, you know, 2,000 and some. So how would you describe what you're trying to get the people you lead to do every day? What do you think of as a good outcome and, and what's an outcome you're trying to avoid? Well, I think that universities are, by their nature, very much, you know, mission-driven, values-driven institutions. And so I really want people to, you know, come in the morning first thing and think about what it is that we are trying to do, particularly on the part of the university that you think of traditionally, which is the student serving side. Um, One of the things that we are very much committed to is that nexus between access. In other words, you know, making sure that as a public state university, that we are accessible to the broad range of members of our community and that, and With access, I mean not only who gets into the university, but to make sure that then they graduate, but also the nexus between access and excellence. We want to make sure that those students, often of modest means from across the state, get the absolute highest caliber education that we can offer. And I want people to be coming in first thing in the morning with that mindset of how am I going to add to that mission? Of course, we have We do it within, we're a research university, and so we have folks that are primarily focused on research. And again, when it comes to research, I want there to be a focus on how is this research going to make the world a better place. And then, of course, we have a very, very large healthcare clinical component to the work that we do, and that is literally about saving lives. Those are soberingly grave missions. How do you articulate that? I mean, one thing that strikes me as complicated is that you've got many different constituencies. You are the leader of the university for its students and all the people learning there and also the leader who's trying to help faculty and administrators achieve the the missions you just outlined. How do you conjure that feeling of people waking up in the morning and trying to achieve those goals? Well, I think that You know, we are. I think that universities are more diverse in their missions than people often think about them, especially, you know, a big public research university. Again, you think about the size, you think about three campuses, you think about 55,000 students, you think about four hospitals. But I think that, you know, at the end, it all gets wrapped up in, you know, we are about creating the future. We are about critical to those missions that are most central to a democracy. Um, Social mobility happens here. And so I think that 
even though there's some real diversity to our missions, there are also some tremendous commonalities. And, you know, I really think that what, at least for me, and I hope that that's the case for many other people, you know, there are moments that are tough. You know, there, you know, there are parts of the job that are, in fact, a grind. I think that everyone has that. But, you know, if you keep your mind on that big mission, that what you're doing really counts. I think that that's tremendous. You know, my parents worked in factories. You know, my dad always told me that good, honest work was important. But at the end of the day, he was making shoes. You know, we are creating the future. We are bettering lives. And I think that that should be very sobering. That should bring out the excellence in what we do. I'm curious about specific tactics you try. Like, how do you disseminate this and how do you cultivate this? Even in, I mean, as you say, universities are an environment that are ripe for mission-driven thinking. But still, what tactics do you use to keep people on track? Well, I think a key part of leadership, whatever um, you're leading in, is about, you know, building a team. There aren't enough hours in the day for me to drop into every faculty meeting, even if I said I'll do it once every other year. And so what you want to do is hire leadership around you that buys into and that actually helps create that same set of values, that same viewpoint. You know, I think you want to make sure that you're hiring people that are on board with the mission. And then you have, you know, it's not just you, but you are multiplying um, those voices. And in fact, I think that one of the things that's perhaps not singularly unique, but fairly unique about a university is that you have a joint governance system. And so, in fact, those values, that mission is not something that the, you know, quote unquote, strongman leader comes in and dictates down. It's something that bubbles up as much as it goes from top down. It's something that we're creating together. How do you go about hiring for that leadership team and finding people who cultivate the work in in the spirit that you and the mission mark is important? Well, it's interesting in that hiring for leadership, particularly academic leadership um, at universities, is a very open process. You have a search committee that often has, you know, as many as 12 to 15 people on it. People, uh, you know, once you get down to the finalists, finalists, you know, when you're hiring for a dean, when you're hiring for a provost, when you're hiring, um, they come onto campus and they give talks. And so, you know, you actually get to see people. It's, you know, it may only be for a couple of days, but nonetheless, over a couple of days, um, meeting with student groups, meeting with faculty groups, you know, you actually get to get a pretty good sense of who someone is. I think that might be the first avid defense of the uh, academic hiring process I've ever heard, and it's a and it's a good one. <laughs> well, it does. I mean, you know, there there is a lot of process um, that's involved when you have joint governance structures. And even though I'm a psychologist, uh, I, I am not always into lots of process, and you try and simplify when you can. But the truth is that these are leadership positions that are very important, and you want to get a sense of not only how is someone going to interact with me or with a colleague at the same level, but how are they going to be able to interact with students? How are they going to be talking to a diverse set of constituents? You mentioned your academic work. Uh, You're a professor of psychology and ethnic studies. 
How does that work in that academic grounding and particularly the uh, work on psychology, which I, I think of as a particularly important part of managing people, uh, factor into the work you do? Well, you know, what's interesting is what, what I found probably to be most helpful from my background is I'm actually a clinical psychologist by training, working with children in particular. And I think one of the things about leadership, there's a theory of leadership that uh, talks about authentic leadership. And uh, a professor here in our own uh, school of business, Bruce Avolio, was involved in disseminating and writing up about this theory. One of the things they talk about is how important it is to know yourself. And one of the things that happens when you're training as a therapist and quite frankly, it's not the most fun part of the training experience, <laughs> is you, as part of the learning experience, all your interactions with your clients are videotaped. And then often you sit down with your supervisor and you watch tapes. And uh, anyone who's watched themselves on tape for hundreds of hours, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's kind of a humbling, uh, a painful um, experience, but you do kind of get to know not just how you view yourself, but you, you know, sometimes how others view you and how you view you are not the perfect match. Like, you know, for example, one of the things that I really learned is that I come across much more strongly than perhaps I feel in my head. Hmm. I'm Cuban in terms of, you know, I was born in Cuba and I was raised in a Cuban family, a big, loud Cuban family, and I tend to express myself boldly, let's say. And uh, at times, it can come across to other people that I know exactly what I want. And certainly, you know, when you're working with clients, you are not the important part. You want to make sure that you're giving someone a chance to express themselves. And that's the case also, um, particularly one of the things that can be difficult as you rise, you know, through an administrative structure is the further you rise, the more people um, want to please you, so to speak. And so you have to be very careful about making sure that you, in fact, don't come across so strongly that everyone just yes, yeses instead of giving you possibly alternative routes or, you know, telling you, hey, you know, I don't agree with you and you need to leave room for that. So, you know, one of the things about, you know, leadership is when I was training students to be therapists, I often told them, you are your instrument. You know, unlike, let's say, a doctor where it might be the scalpel is the instrument, you are your own instrument. And so some of the things that I've learned over the years is, um, you know, there's a joke about Cubans, how do you quiet a Cuban? Tie their hands. And so literally at times um, I will sit on my hands because it's important for me to make sure that I leave room for others to speak and that I'm listening, et cetera. So, you know, I've learned a lot about myself in my training as a therapist that I find is actually very useful in a leadership position. Do you find that uh, as you've moved from primarily faculty to administrative roles that self-knowledge has evolved? Is there a different set of understanding of yourself as an instrument in an administrative managerial position that you've had to cultivate? No, absolutely. There's there's no question. Like I say, in particular, that awareness that you really need to go out of your way to allow others to make critical comments, that it's not easy for them to criticize a particular, you also have to be a bit more careful about, you know, one of the things that, you know, we often do is kind of talk off the cuff and, you know, throw out ideas and, you know, you're just brainstorming. 
And uh, all of a sudden, you know, when, when you're in a leadership position like this, you sneeze, everyone else catches a cold. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to be careful that when you are brainstorming that that's very clear what setting you're doing it in. Because, um, again, there is a tendency to want to align yourself with the leader. And when you're still thinking things through, even though you may have some ideas, you don't want your initial ideas or perhaps at times half-baked ideas for everyone to just rally around because you're the leader. Right. You know, it's really about, you know, collaboration. I figure, particularly in an academic setting where the university is full of brilliant people, on any given topic that we might be analyzing or considering, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I've picked the wrong group. How do you foster an environment that makes criticism of your leadership or criticism of your ideas possible, apart from sitting on your hands? Are there other tactics you use? Well, I think that, you know, it's partly how you set the stage, you know, with your leadership team. And again, being very clear from the beginning that, in fact, they're doing you no favors if they don't bring up the ifs, ands, or buts to any particular direction that you're taking. But in fact, they're there. I mean, you know, I tell people, you know, come at me hard. This is the setting in which I want you to come at me hard because when we leave the room, I want us to be on one page. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the path you took from faculty into administration? When did you first think that a broader leadership role like this one is one that you might want to pursue? Well, you know, I I actually uh, wrote a chapter a while back uh, where I talked about myself as an accidental administrator because, you know, this certainly wasn't something that I planned on at any point in my career. Uh, and in fact, I can remember at one point that someone put together a group of potential women leaders and I was like, what am I doing here? I mean, I always felt that when my turn came, I would take it. If you had asked me, I, I'm not sure I really thought about it a lot, was, you know, that would I take my turn? Of course I would. And in fact, I was involved in lesser administrative positions from pretty early on in my career. I always had a lab. I always had my research at the same time, et cetera. And, you know, quite frankly, in fact, I was kind of very actively, at least at one point, discouraged from thinking of myself. The very first time that I threw my hat in, that instead of being, how shall I say, uh, approached about taking an administrative job, the first time that I saw a position that I wanted was a, a particular deanship. And I decided to go ahead and throw my hat into the ring. And uh, when the the university president who was at the time making the decision um not only told me that you know i didn't have the job which is you know perfectly fine but he actually told me i was temperamentally not cut out for administrative leadership um that i wasn't good enough at compromise and that i wasn't necessarily uh, prudent in my approach to things because i am uh, a rather passionate person you know it seemed like you know i really didn't think that this is some place that I would end up. Um, sometimes when people ask me, how did you get here? I say, well, I guess I said yes a lot. And there's some, there's some truth to that. How did you feel when you got that feedback? Did you worry whether it might be true? Did you feel like the guy was way out of line? What was your response? I was disappointed. There's no question about that. But I'm not sure I was uh, totally surprised. You know, I, I sometimes uh, describe myself as not an administrator out of central casting. Mm-hmm. If you were casting someone in the role of a university president, I'm not sure anyone would come to me. 
And it's a combination of things, not just being, you know, woman, being a lesbian, um, being a Latina, but also, like I say, I tend to have a, I don't talk a lot in administrative ease. I'm not very formal in my approach to things. And so it, in, in, in some senses, it was disappointing, but not surprising. You know, I took it pretty seriously as, okay, I, you know, I don't think you have to be a leader in the traditional sense of the word to lead. And I think that uh, I had always been very comfortable doing what I call leading from the margins, where you can actually sometimes have a lot of influences and where, quite frankly, when you're leading from the margins, you can throw bricks, which is something that you can't do from the center. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was like, okay, fine. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it was certainly not like, you know, oh, this is the end of but I, you know, I took it seriously in the sense of I thought, okay, I've learned something. And what was the next step? Did you pursue another deanship or uh, leadership position after that? And in doing so, did you temper your approach or lean into it? You know, I'm fairly unusual in not just, you know, my demographics, but also in that I am a university president at the same university that I've spent the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. I came here as an assistant professor. And that is uncommon enough that, you know, it, it made the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that this is my university and that when I talk about this university transforming lives and changing lives, I, I include my own in that. But it also means that you're not about to change your stripes. You know, it's not like all of a sudden, hey, I'm going to go to whatever leadership school and, you know, come in and be a different person. And so in that sense, I certainly, you know, took the feedback, but it wasn't like, you know, I was going to change who I was. I ended up, in, you know, instead of doing that job, I actually ended up directing the honors program. And then actually there was an unexpected uh, a chair in my home department psychology ended up resigning unexpectedly. And so they asked me to go there. And all of a sudden I was back towards a different track that I thought I'd left behind. I mean, the truth is uh, a number of times when I've stepped up, have been in situations where, in fact, the leader before me, in all cases, quite frankly, a male, left somewhat unexpectedly. And so I was there. And I said, yes. You, as you know, are one of a very small number of women leading big universities and of an even smaller number of queer women of color doing so. And I was struck in looking over your tenure that a month into your tenure as interim president, before you'd been you know, fully appointed in the role you're in now, you launched a race and equity initiative at the university. What was your thinking on that? It looked to me, and, and to correct me if I'm wrong, like that was something you did four or five weeks into the interim president role. Well, it was a uh, relatively quick. It had been something I'd been thinking about before. I was in the role of provost before, but it really was in reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which was quite strong on our campus. And I felt that it required a response and that we really did need to look much more carefully and much more broadly at our mission when it came to race, when it came to diversity more broadly. I think, you know, we, we very explicitly put race and equity, although we, this is more than about race, because often I think, you know, when people talk about diversity, you know, race can be put to the side. And in the midst of the Black Lives Matters movement, race was at the forefront and it was important that it be at the forefront. I certainly wasn't going to let, and I think this is, you know, really important. The fact that I was interim was not the moment to start being timid. I was also trying to decide 
is this a job I wanted? I was certainly more than willing to step up because I was the natural person to step up. But at that point, I hadn't decided whether or not I was going to throw in my hat for the presidency. And to some degree, the decision to do that was also, can I be me? Are the things that I care about, is that a good match for the presidency of this university? You gave a speech when you launched the initiative in which you spoke very personally about your own experience and talked about coming out to your mother and introducing your partner to her and about the murder of your brother. I'm struck by you saying, can I be me in this role? Can you talk about the decision to bring your personal experience to the community and to speak so candidly about it in that context? Well, I think we all are products of our personal experience, and we all bring that to our role. And I think that being transparent about it, quite frankly, is part of who I am. One of the things that's uh, that's so interesting is we always, we talk about overcoming these things. And, you know, and, and, and that's not an inappropriate way of looking at it, but I think that hardships aren't just things to be overcome. They're things that you learn from. They're things that give you strength. All those experiences, and, and, and believe me, some of them I would, you know, give my right arm if they hadn't happened, especially, you know, in terms of my, my brother's death. But they are so much a part of who you are, and they're as much a part of your strengths as they are of something that you've overcome, has this sense of, you know, you go beyond and you leave them behind. These are experiences you take with you. They're experiences that are part of your growth. And I felt that being candid about them, especially in the context of launching a race and equity initiative, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way, I guess. How has that uh, the, that initiative progressed since you've taken on the, the presidency and in the, in the years since? Certainly, we haven't fixed the world and we haven't fixed our university. And, you know, and I, and, you know, uh, critics appropriately have at times talked about it as all talk, although there have been a number of actions, no question. But I think that talk is important and that uh, one of the things that has become very difficult in this country at this time is talking to each other across differences. And that is one of the things that we've been doing as part of these initiatives is having conversations across differences. We find that particularly when we're talking about sensitive topics like race and gender and some of the Me Too that's, uh, that, that's very much a part of the ethos right now that the, the discussions sometimes do have to be moderated. And so we've trained and worked with uh, a number of students and faculty as moderators. And, uh, you know, we've had some very, very, difficult conversations that are important to have, but we've also taken some very clear steps. For example, we've been doing a lot of work with our search committees to make sure that we're looking broadly at candidates and getting past, uh, for example, the word star is hardly ever used for women. Women are hardworking. Men are stars. And so, you know, how do you read letters of recommendation so that you really get past those buzzwords? You know, we've been doing a number of things. We now have, for example, a police advisory board that has members of our student community on it. So, you know, there's a number of very clear actions that we've taken. But, you know, we are still very far from being the kind of university and the kind of environment that I want us to be. I mean, there is still, you know, we haven't eradicated stereotypes. We haven't eradicated uh, discrimination, but we're more aware of it. And I think that's very, very important. 
What advice would you give? I mean, I think a lot of uh, big institutions and corporations are beginning to take equity and diversity and inclusion more seriously. What advice would you give to an institution that's beginning to make that a more serious focus? What, what have you learned over the last couple of years? And what would your counsel be? One thing that's very important is that the reason to do this and it's not that I want to be very clear. I think that fairness, I think that equity, all of that is very important. But this, at the end of the day, it's about excellence. It's about making sure that you have uh, the very best people at the table, that you're not overlooking people because of particular stereotypes about, you know, what a leader looks like. And it really is about the very best. It's really about making sure. I mean, I talked before about how important it was to make sure that you have critics at the table, that you have people that are willing to push you on your perspective. That's part of why it's so important to have diverse voices at the table. You know, diversity is really about, you know, making sure that you have people at the table who are bringing different experiences, who are familiar with different communities. And at the end of the day, the message that you're giving out, you want it to resonate. When I talk about the university, um, when I'm recruiting to the university, whether it's faculty or students, I'm not just talking to one audience, and I need to make sure that the message resonates. And so having a diverse group of leaders at the table or working with a diverse group of students is very important. And so I think first and foremost, it's very important to be very clear that this is part of being excellent. Do you think things are better or worse for women entering academia now than they were when you were first starting out? Well, in many ways, it's the best of times and the worst of times, but there's there's no question. I mean, when I think about when I started, things are, I think, much, much, much better. What do you think accounts for that change? Well, part of it is just the numbers. At this point in this country, in terms of a higher percentage of women are getting bachelor's degrees than men. At the student level, higher education is majority female, and I think that numbers matter. And you see, I mean, on the one hand, And like I say, you know, that's what I mean by the best of times, worst of times. If you think of the pipeline to, let's say, the university presidency as beginning, you know, you're not going to get there unless you've been an undergraduate and gotten a bachelor's degree. You know, if you follow the pipeline up, there's leakage at every step. If you look at percentage, there's a higher percentage of women undergraduates than graduate students a higher percentage of women graduate students than you have assistant professors, a higher professor, a higher percentage of women assistant professors than tenured professors. So you, you have leakage at every step along the way. But the truth is that you have a higher percentage every step along the way than you did before. I mean, when I was in graduate school, even in a psychology department, I'd say maybe 20% of the faculty were women. And I think that we'd see that very differently today. That pipeline point, I think, is really interesting. And and the leakage at different levels of advancement is, of course, something that we see across industries. Are there ways in which uh, academic institutions are moving to counter some of that leakage uh, or things that you think uh, universities should be focused on? Yeah, I think that there are a number of things that you need to look at. For example, one of the things that's fairly unique about academic institutions is the tenure process, that basically when you get hired as a faculty member, you have six years up or out. And those, you know, given that most women are finishing their PhDs in somewhere between their mid to late 20s, and, you know, clearly there's a lot of, there's a lot of range, but 
nonetheless, it means that those six years are happening, you know, during those peak years for having children. And so one of the things that we have done in universities across the country is added more flexibility to the 10-year time clock so that you don't have the biological clock and the 10-year clock absolutely, you know, ticking at the same time and have added more flexibility there so that if a woman is pregnant, she can take not just a year off, but a year off the clock, which off the 10-year clock, which didn't used to be the case. What's interesting about that and part of why I think that when you're more flexible for one group, that ends up being better for another is that what we've been seeing is men, not only men taking time off the tenure clock to be more involved in parenting, which is great, the fact that men are more involved in parenting these days, but also, um, and we see this more often with men than women, taking time off the tenure clock to, let's say, do a startup company. And so this ability to take time off the clock that was done with women in mind has ended up adding flexibility and excellence across the board, whether you're a woman or not. And so that's something that I think is also really important is that when you create um, more flexible pathways, looking at the unique experiences of one group, you actually create uh, more possibilities for everybody. But that has really been important. It's actually interesting. The percentage of women who are university presidents, and they've also found this amongst provosts. I don't know that they've done the studies on deans, et cetera. A much higher percentage of us aren't married and don't have children. I fit the second category. And so it's it's interesting. I think that the university still has a long way to go in terms of making these positions one where that are much more compatible with people being the primary caretakers of children. Have those changes in the tenure clock been uniform across universities or adopted piecemeal by different systems according to their own internal debates? How, how widely has that been happening? Well, I think that, you know, it's been piecemeal in the sense of, you know, universities don't act, uh, you know, we don't all hold hands and, and make changes at the same time. I think what happens is a few universities are out in front, it seems to be working, and then that creates, you know, we compete with each other for faculty. And if some places has some policies that are more attractive, um, you're at a disadvantage if you don't adopt them. I think at this point, the ability to take time off the tenure clock, I, I honestly can't think of anybody that doesn't have that. Are there similar policies that you think might help in administrative roles for how they're shaped or framed or how talent is sought for them that might increase the numbers of women in those ranks? Well, we had a grant from the National Science Foundation that was really tremendous. It was called Advance, and it was really about trying to get more women into leadership roles, particularly in the STEM disciplines. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind that although um, we do have a majority of undergraduates are women now that uh, it's it's very lumpy in terms of where they are and that there are still some fields where the percentage of women is much lower. And so this grant was really, you know, focused on women in these fields and, you know, some of the things that uh, as we and I was the principal investigator on the advanced grant for a while, um, some of the things that we tried as part of that grant and that we have now institutionalized more include things like allowing, you know, providing some budget for women to be able to 
for example, pay for childcare when they go to conferences. Um, so that they can take their children with them because sometimes that is something that they need to be able to do. So, you know, I'd, I'd say it's really much more about being sensitive to the fact that, and, you know, and I'm saying this in terms of women because in this country women still are overwhelmingly the primary caretakers of children, but trying to be much more sensitive to the fact that, you know, things like having departments think about when they have faculty meetings. Um, it used to be pretty typical that faculty meetings were at 3 o'clock um, in the afternoon. Is that the best time uh, in terms of that's often a time when people are picking up their kids? And so, you know, I think that that having that grant really forced us or provided the incentive to think more broadly about a number of things that made it very difficult at times for women to be in leadership positions and what were some things that we could change. Um, of course, um, how to institutionalize it once the money that came with the grant um, disappeared, you know, was a bit of a challenge. And, you know, we're always dealing with, you know, budgetary issues. But I think that and daycare particularly is something that we struggle with providing enough of and providing access to. But it's clear that that is an important component to all of this. What are some of the most stubborn problems to solve or some cities that are particularly disheartening in, in trying to push the advancement of women in leadership roles across academia? One of the things I love about working in university settings is the, the intergenerational quality. And so, for example, um, from my perspective, when I look at how things have changed from the time that I was a student until now, I see enormous progress uh, at the same time, when I talk to students about what they're experiencing, I realize, you know, we still have a long way to go. And so, you know, it's kind of that balance. I mean, on, you know, I can on any given day be discouraged at just how incredibly stubborn stereotypes can be and how difficult it is for people to get past them at this particular moment in history where I think that uh, the curtain has been drawn back in terms of some of the most base forms of racism. I have to say I I've have moments when I'm not sure I'll, no, I'm very close to despair. Uh, you know, I still remember Charlottesville and I couldn't imagine that here we are in 20, you know, in the 2000s, and we're still seeing some of that. So, you know, what you realize is that, you know, this isn't like battles that are won, that, you know, these are struggles that we make progress, but that we keep on struggling with. And that can sometimes be disheartening. On the other hand, I think that that's the way that the world works. That's where you need to look at things over long stretches of time, and you do see progress, although sometimes it's very, very slow, and you do see moments of a lot of backsliding. What advice would you give to someone starting their academic career now who'd love to be a university president someday? Say yes. The number of potential opportunities that will come across someone's desk, so to speak, across their life, um, let's say we're talking to a 20-year-old over the next 20 years, are enormous. Don't doubt yourself. If there's something that you're interested in and you think you might be able to do, there are probably a ton of different reasons not to do it. 
say yes. That is wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Kause, for spending the time talking with me and our listeners here on Women in Charge. Okay, and thank you. That's our show. Our producer is Jessica Jupiter. We had additional editorial support from Cleo Levin and June Thomas. You can email us at womenincharge at slate.com with comments, feedback, or suggestions for other women we should interview. And please don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll see you next week.